Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hello, Medicus podcast listeners. Um, welcome to Medicus. Uh, my name is Insup. I'm your host today with John, my co-host. Um, John is his first episode with us. If you just want to introduce yourself, say hi to the listeners. Hello, everyone. It's uh, great to be here. Um, not always in my first Medicus podcast, but it's my fir- first podcast ever. So it's pretty exciting stuff. I've always wanted to do it. So I'm uh, excited to jump in. Sounds good. And hopefully you'll be hearing more from him in the near future. Um, And for episode today, we have our special guest who needs no introduction. um, The one of the leading most popular episodes in Medicus history. We have uh, Dean Daryl Neighbors, uh, our Dean of Admissions at the Loyola University of Chicago Stris School of Medicine. How's it going, Dean Neighbors? I'm doing well today. It's good to see you both, John Insep. Glad you're uh, carrying this forward. It, the last time I did this, there was an entirely different crew that I imagine are now fourth years trying to get out of here. So good to see it's been passed on. And um, just before we get started, um, I like to do like a fun thing. Um, I just maybe throwing out there. Do you have a favorite restaurant in the Chicago slash Chicago land area that you have a go to? Well, um, I would say uh, I have a newfound love for a restaurant. My, uh, my son is now a sophomore in college, and uh, I forced him to get a job last summer. And um, I, I saw uh, a posting for a waiter position and busboy positions uh, at a neighborhood restaurant. I live in Hyde Park, and the restaurant is called, a restaurant is called Virtue. Mm. And uh, the the executive chef is Eric Williams. I didn't know who he was at the time, but then I read up and I found that he's uh, won the, um, uh, I think it's the Baird Award. I think that's, or the Beard Award. Beard, yeah. James uh, Beard Award. Yeah. So um, for the region uh, affiliation of uh, Midwest, mm-hmm. he's like the number one chef and he won the Beard Award. So I didn't know this, mm-hmm. but I, I forced my son to go there to get a job and literally like, like, pushed him out of the car and drove off and said, you're going to get a job. I'm going to come back and pick you up. And he did. He actually worked there. Um, he was a busboy because he, he's too young to be a waiter. But uh, the food is amazing. Mm, it's I, I absolutely amazing. And it takes uh, an act of Congress to get a reservation there. So, um, but I did eat there twice. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the, the pull of being a Dean of Admission Vestry School <laughs> Well, I, I had to sit at the bar. I haven't actually sat at a real table yet, but I'm just doing what I can to get in there. But I would say that's uh, that's definitely my, my favorite at this point. What kind of food are they making over there? Definitely Southern. It's definitely New Orleans style, you know, kind of mm. uh, some Cajun Creole mm. uh, influences, but it's definitely a fusion of, you know, like an other kind of more classic uh, sort of traditional fare, but infused with this kind of Southern flavor, if you will. Yeah. Hard for me to describe food because I just eat it. I don't really make it. But uh, <laughs> I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> I but see if, you've, I eat. if you've ever been to New Orleans, you know that it's one of the things that you do. You just go there and you eat a lot. And uh, uh, it definitely reminds me of the flavor of New Orleans. So I would say that's kind of what I'm capturing a Chicago-esque flavor of New Orleans. 
Yeah. I'm, I'm sensing a dean of admissions at Tulane uh, Medical School <laughs> in the future or something, maybe. If <laughs> you ever visit Chicago, you'll Retirement. Right. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Um, yeah, and I think, um, I don't know if I introduced today's topic, but um, we're here to talk about post-bac programs. I know, um, Dean Neighbors, where are we at with regards to like the interview cycle now? We're still in the thick of it, right? Yeah, we've got another month and a half mm -hmm. or so of interviews. Um, two or three in person and uh, the remainder would be virtual. Mm -hmm. So we decided to do about a 60%, 40% split mm -hmm. between virtual and in-person interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, we recognize that it's becoming more and more of a challenge for candidates to actually do an in-person interview. Mm -hmm. I think during the pandemic, they were curtailed, obviously, and forced into a virtual environment. But I think beyond that, many medical schools felt and still feel that it's more reasonable to have them in a virtual environment to save costs for the candidate, to save you know costs for the school. Um, but we've decided to maintain uh, an in-person presence. We feel like our environment is unique. Mm. It's definitely work, worth a look. And I think that uh, the candidates, uh, the ones that I've spoken to so far, have really um, been encouraged by the opportunity to be here and see uh, our students, talk to them, and kind of get a visceral sense for the space that we're in. And I think it's a benefit to us, you know, because I think we have a really great student body and a really great campus. That is definitely the truth. I remember, um, yeah, when I we got our first walkthrough um, from when I was in the MAMS program, and then I had uh, one of the upperclassmen, Sean Cho, who's now my roommate and is M4 member of Medicus as well. He was showing me around campus, and he went to the gym, and then he, I swear he said hi to like four or five professors and attendings, and I was like. This is a thing. Like he's just like, oh hey, doctor, whatever, whatever. He's like, oh yeah, that's my, you know, my physio professor. I see him at the gym all the time. And then we would just go to the atrium, and um, he was like saying, just saying hi to literally everybody. I was like, wow, this is like a strong student body community kind of thing. Um, yeah, students are very much uh, a minority among the healthcare professionals and research professionals that are here. But I think that gives them a really great opportunity to to dive into the professional landscape and observe and shadow and be a part of the environment and um, I think that's one of the benefits of, of this medical school for sure. It's definitely. John were you virtual when you were interviewing? I was in person mm -hmm. and <clears throat> it made sense for me because I'm from the area I grew up you know born and raised in Chicago but to be honest other than maybe driving past Loyola Medical Center once or twice throughout my time here in Chicago I've never really been here and so my time interviewing here was really special in that I was, you know, kind of exposed to this whole community that I've lived adjacent to my whole life and had never known the um, just how special it, it seemed when I was here. And obviously that's getting more and more prevalent as I'm, I'm only a first year here, but it's really cool kind of seeing how that um, unfolds here. And um, uh, it's, it's really cool. I like it. So yeah, it is a special thing to be able to, come here in person and interview. And um, of course, everyone's not able to do it, but um, yeah, it's, highly encouraged. It's far different when you have to come here as a patient. We've actually had some of our candidates, um, you know, have had procedures done here. Uh, one candidate we accepted this this cycle it was born here. Hmm. Um, so uh, it's definitely a different perspective. When wow. you, <laughs> you take it from that angle. Um, but yeah, you're right. Most people just kind of drive by the space or have heard of it or see it, you know, on the news or whatever, you know, so. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you for and yeah, just kind of all like leading towards like kind of everything is coming full circle. I feel like, especially for me, like this topic is very near and dear to my heart as a former, not former, as a Loyola Mams graduate, um, but also just being able to talk to you um, in this space too, because Dinero was actually my phone call. Um, for when I got accepted. Yeah, I don't know if you remember because you probably do this like so so much and so often. I was like at work, I was working at Rush and then like at the right end of like, we saw our last patient and then I, I read on S, uh, SDN that, oh, today might be a phone call day. And oh, yeah, man. and I was, SDN. so the whole day I was just like anxious and I was like, <laughs> oh, like first rounds went up, I checked Reddit, like some people heard and, and I was like, oh, I'm probably not gonna get one. It's the end of the work day and then Right after I left, uh, my last, last patient was about to leave. I saw the random Chicago phone number on my phone. I was like, oh, what is this? And then the neighbors told me that I accepted. And so, nice. Yeah, I was uh, calling you for my house. It's sort of a change up, the 773. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Yep. All right. So um, let's just kind of jump into it, I guess. Um, I do have like a, a pre-cut like Google definition here, but, you know, I feel like we would like to just get your input mm -hmm. on it. Like, let's just start with definitions here. Like, Deaners, what do you define as a post-bac program just in general? Well, you know, I think it's interesting because there's a formality to it and there's often an informality to it. So post-baccalaureate programming is supposed to be anything that provides a supplement to your undergraduate education and in typical fashion for medical school tends to be any iteration of a science course that might be part of your original progression as an undergrad. Maybe you missed it. Um, maybe it's something you want to take again to kind of enhance your academic standing as an undergrad. But uh, essentially, it is any science-oriented work done post-graduation that is not part of a formal program of study to confer a degree. So in essence, if you choose to do your entire academic progression again, mm -hmm. uh, that you covered as a pre-med and, under, and undergrad, uh, and some students choose to do that informally, take a couple of classes here, take a couple of classes there. And often what is the case is that there may have been some time that has elapsed between their undergraduate coursework and their desire to go to medical school. Mm -hmm. So in order to have a more uh, realistic approach to the academic trend that will take them into medical school. They might want to take some of those courses again. Or let's say that uh, they majored in English and they took the requisite, you know, re required courses to get like a minor in biology. And two years later, after graduation, they decided they want to go to medical school. Uh, they don't want to go into a formal, you know, master's program. So they want to take courses that will give them the opportunity to have more enhanced science core mm -hmm. that would also be a post back but that's an informal one mm -hmm. uh the formal ones tend to be um you know oriented by some in some cases medical schools uh or health sciences institutions but again <clears throat> they could structure <clears throat> excuse me like uh 24 credits of coursework uh, let's say there's three credits per course, that's eight courses. They can design that to be relevant to what any candidate might need to cover the basis for a reasonable application to medical school. Mm -hmm. So for us, we say a minimum of 30 credits to be considered for the uh, MD degree mm -hmm. along with your bachelor's degree. And again, bachelor's does not have to be in any kind of science. It can be in anything. 
but that 30 credits of science has to be completed and it has to, you know, in, in, encourage an understanding of your, your chemistry and your biology sequence. Uh, we don't demand physics, but in some cases, you know, programs will consider that as part of your BCM, and I think all of them will. Mm -hmm. Math, of course, is part of that. So you could structure it any way that you want, but ultimately it would cover enough credits to give any committee the understanding that these are consistent with an understanding of science at a baseline and then when you correlate that with the MCAT, is there enough of a trend to suggest the candidate will succeed uh, in the first year of medical school? So that is the my definition, which may not match up with your Google definition of a post-baccalaureate program. The other significant thing about them is that any credits that are acquired are part of your undergraduate course assessment. So again, if you had 120 credits as an undergrad and you graduated with 120 credits, um, the post-bac, let's say that if you did post-bac of 24 credits, you now have 144 total undergraduate credits. That's how the, the uh, admissions committee will <coughs> see those credits appear. That's how they'll be coded. So for, for many students, uh, let's say that they graduated with a science GPA that's a, a 3-4. So they may want to enhance, right? They may want to increase the, the science GPA. So the only way you can really do that is to add credits. And of course, if you've graduated, you, you already have your degree. So that's another reason why the post-bac has always been uh, an effective opportunity for, for candidates is so, so they can extend the trend and add more courses to the undergraduate core and then, with hope, increase the GPA. I actually didn't know about that nuance. Then I know you mentioned the postback being able to be a part of your undergraduate GPA. Mm -hmm. Is then a special master's program different than being at a gra graduate program and a graduate master's degree rewarding program? Well, no, it's okay. a master's program. Anything that confers a degree is mm -hmm. going to stand alone mm -hmm. as a degree component mm -hmm. to your record, right? So once you've graduated, and you can had your you know undergraduate degree conferred, then you can decide to go into another formal program of study, mm -hmm. and that's typically what a candidate will do if they want to get a master's degree in public health, mm -hmm. or a master's degree in medical science or physiology, or anything, right? Um, and of course, you have to be careful about the designation of those credits. Mm -hmm. It may be that you want to extend your science core. Mm -hmm. You may want there to be more evidence of your viability with science as a part of your formal education. Mm -hmm. Some students will take on an MPH, assuming that that will basically tell that story. But in many cases, if not all, MPH credits are not necessarily coded as biology, chemistry, physics, or math. They're coded as allied health, or psych or public health or some iteration of that that uh, the institution has coded consistent with the program of study that is part of that um, that sequence, right? So, um, you know, allied health tends to be a pretty big component of the MPH degree. When we receive the AMCAS application, AMCAS verifies all of your coursework and they essentially have like three columns where they can assign credits. They can assign them into being your 
biology, chemistry, physics, math, they can assign them to being all other. In other words, anything that's not biology, chemistry, physics, or math, or they can assign them as part of your overall undergraduate GPA. For a, a course of study that is a master's or a PhD or psych D or any other formal degree, uh, it'll code separately. So if you've taken on 38 credits to achieve a master's degree, I know that's kind of low, let's say 58 credits to achieve a master's degree, they would be coded separately. And the institution would have, again, the opportunity to code all of their courses within a transcript that AMCAS would then verify. So we could actually identify each course that you've taken and see the coding and how it relates to science. And then AMCAS would do the additional benefit of taking all of those credits and assigning categorically a GPA for the science core, a GPA for all of your other credits, and then the overall GPA for that coursework. So what we're doing then is we're looking at your undergraduate coursework as a comparison to your master's program coursework, which is different than a post-bac. A post-bac, we're looking at your undergraduate coursework combined with your undergraduate post-baccalaureate credits. Now, MCAS will allow us to be able to tease out the post-bac credits mm -hmm. so we can see those as isolated course credits, but at the end of the day, they're not going to give us a separate GPA for that. They're not going to give us a separate classification of strength for that. It's just going to be kind of consumed into your undergraduate GPA. Wow. Yeah. This is, again, very interesting. Yeah. I had no idea this was like how the algorithm, in a sense, mm -hmm. like classified the distinguish between a postback and a, like an SMB. So yeah. this is, yeah, this is very Hence why we're doing this conversation right now. I'm talking to the man who knows about this. So very interesting. Um, yeah, no, I kind of wish that I did a post of SFP. That's fine. Um, but um, in kind of regards to that, then, I guess, like, there's the AMCAS factor. Um, but kind of like you mentioned, um, there are a bunch of people that do many different kinds of programs post-undergrad um, when they're trying to apply to medical school, whether it's an MPH, whether that's a master's in medical science or master of science in some other program kind of thing. Um, let's say that the underlying quote unquote issue they want to target here is like a low like GPA, like science GPA, and they don't feel like they're prepared um, to go to medical school or that they just want to pursue more science and build that foundation like you mentioned. Um, having, you know, four years of undergrad compared to that of maybe a one year program or two year program of let's say high achieving, how do how does emissions kind of see that like is it like that trend in general? Is that clear? Yeah, I mean I think it's always important to recognize that most committees want to know how ready you are to begin on day one. Mm -hmm. So the closer all of your coursework is to that day one of you know matriculating to medical school, the more important it is to have a strong sense of confidence with the coursework. So again. Um, if you're looking at a connection between your undergraduate courses and the reality of your first day of medical school, it's important to build as much evidence to support that within your application. Okay. And again, there could be some distance between those two points. We've always said that if there's a distance greater than three years between the end of your undergraduate coursework and the beginning of your medical school career mm -hmm. that we need to know more 
details. We need to have a really good sense that you've either prepared through some other realm or experience. Uh, if it's not the academic realm, perhaps you've dived into research, perhaps you've been working in a clinical environment. If you've just separated yourself entirely from any kind of medical practice or skill development or training component or academic exercise relative to getting closer to that goal. And again, the, the thing that always interrupts that is the MCAT because you have to have an MCAT that is no more than three years old, right? So if you have five years distance between your undergraduate coursework and the start of medical school, what you might have is a new MCAT, right? So if that MCAT score is correlated with your academic coursework, then there's really not much to consider. I mean, there's a kind of a straight line. Yeah. And now we just have the distance and we have to recognize, is the candidate going to be ready given the distance between their last coursework and start a medical school? In most cases, beyond five years, we're going to say no. There's got to be something else there. Mm -hmm. So this is where a lot of students will jump in and take additional courses, right? Kind of build the breadcrumbs towards the medical school um, matriculation date. And again, the stronger they do, the better they do, the more rigorous those courses are, the greater opportunity they have to convince the committee that they're ready, right? So again, I think it's important when you consider where you take those courses. So if you've gone to a Loyola or you've gone to a, you know, an institution that's pretty rigorous, you want to have, you know, credits that correlate with the rigor of the institution that you graduated from. So part of what I've seen is that many candidates will choose to do community college credits for their post back because they're probably less expensive, probably a little bit more um, reasonable in terms of time commitment or flexibility. Mm -hmm. uh, you can work and take a class and maybe that class is online. It suits your schedule. I mean, again, you're getting the core content. And again, it's probably going to be pretty, I mean, a lot easier than perhaps uh, the uh, standard course you took as an undergrad. Um, and let's say you get an A in that. Let's say you take three or four of those courses and you get all A's. Now you've got 12 credits that are at an A level that are connecting your undergraduate coursework to your medical school application. Well, that's great. But again, <clears throat> does it correlate with the MCAT? So again, a lot of students will take this gap into consideration, take a few <coughs> courses to really get them primed to take the MCAT. And let's say they take the MCAT and they're taking it for the first time and their score is kind of below the, the national average. I think the national average is a 505 now, but I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, I, it, it seems to fluctuate. Mm -hmm. I've seen evidence to support that the average candidate MCAT score is like a 511, but national numbers through AMCAS represent 505 as being more of the, the average. Mm -hmm. So so let's say that <clears throat> you, you've got a five-year hiatus, you've taken 12 credits, and an informal post-bac, mm -hmm. which is basically, you know, four classes over the course of that time, and you take the AMCAT and you get a 503. In, in terms of the applicant pool, you might consider yourself to be less than average because of, again... Take the 3-4, you're adding 12 credits to 120. It's not really going to raise mm -hmm. anything in terms of your GPA. Mm -hmm. It's going to give the committee an understanding that you're connecting your previous experience to your, to your new experience mm -hmm. and that the trend might be up 
in terms of the quality of the coursework you're 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 completing, mm-hmm. but is it as rigorous as it was in the past? And again, if it doesn't correlate with a strong MCAT, then the committee might say, well, these courses are fine, but they're not as strong as they were for him or her as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't correlate well to a, an average MCAT that we might consider to be viable in our pool. Mm-hmm. So this is why candidates might consider to build out a more consistent program, mm-hmm. right? If you think about what a consistent program looks like, well, the typical student is going to take three to four courses a semester, and they may take those courses over uh, two years, right? So if you're looking at that construct, you're looking at, you know, 24 credits for uh, potentially a a one-year post-bac program or master's program. Mm -hmm. The thing you have to decide is if you're doing the post-bac program, First of all, you understand it doesn't confer a degree. Mm-hmm. It might give you a certificate of completion. It may not necessarily provide you with a lot of additional resources to help you with your application, mm-hmm. but it might be pretty easy and flexible to accommodate your schedule. Mm-hmm. You may still be able to work, right? You won't have to take out loans, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people do, but you may not have to, right? And it's not going to compel you to just go all in and just do that coursework, Mm -hmm. right? And that's the big difference, Mm -hmm. you know, between a master's program or a special master's program and the post-bac route that a lot of candidates take. They just want to be consistent with their work activity. You know, I've I've heard from many candidates they want to work to raise money to eventually get to medical school because obviously it's expensive or raise enough money to actually complete the application process because they're thinking, I want to apply to 20, 25 programs. Um, and then they can't really free themselves up from a work commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it works for many students, mm-hmm. right? Um, so again, we take the same scenario and say that's five year gap. And let's say now you have 24 credits, mm-hmm. right? Well, it may not boost your GPA significantly, but it's going to give you a much more, solid foundation of knowledge before you take the MCAT. So now the potential is your MCAT could get to a 510 or a 511 or a 512 because the additional coursework is now giving you a greater foundation of knowledge or, you know, giving you more opportunity to practice your science-based skills so that when you take the MCAT, you're going to do much better. You're giving yourself a much better opportunity to build on your knowledge. So I think that's another key consideration for the post-bac coursework. Is it going to help? Is there a goal other than medical school, right? And again, that's ultimately the goal. But if you're looking at it as a way to progress towards that goal, it has to include the MCAT because without completing the coursework, you know, it's just going to be an MCAT that's consistent with your previous knowledge. So if you give yourself the opportunity to gain new knowledge and then apply it towards the MCAT, your brain is a little bit more developed because you're a little bit older. Your brain has now taken in several years of life after college, the real world, the world of work, the application of the skills and knowledge that you've gained as an undergrad, you're now using in the real world. So again, this builds your knowledge foundation and now you're adding to that another layer of academic study. All of this is going to be helpful for the MCAT because the MCAT is tracking not just the academic 
components of your knowledge, but also integrating that with real world scenarios through the cars, right? The cycle, uh, uh, social section of the MCAT. So that's why I think students who take that gap tend to do much better when they go back into the coursework realm, especially in this model, mm. and, and do achieve success. You know, again, they could be a reapplicant. They may have tried before, but th this definitely seems like a model of success. Um, now, with a master's program, you got to give up working. <clears throat> you may have to take out loans. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a lot more expensive. You're going to be really a student again. Mm -hmm. And so this is the thing that many medical schools will see. Okay, the formal approach to study is to have a program to have you know instruction, to have applied opportunities to develop that knowledge and to build a project or to build a thesis or a dissertation or whatever the case may be, some solid evidence of success that confers the degree, right? So that's a whole other set of opportunities that now are coming into consideration. Mm -hmm. Along with the other components that were satisfied with the regular post-bac, mm -hmm. the building of the knowledge. But when you build knowledge and then you have an outcome, right? An outcome that has been evaluated mm -hmm. and assessed and given the standard conference of a degree, mm -hmm. like that has a little bit more momentum mm -hmm. and viability because now it's an add-on to your medical education. Mm -hmm. And so if that master's degree is in something like public health, and again, bad example because of not a lot of science there mm -hmm. but if you've covered the science bases already and now you're just using that MPH to build on your knowledge and again thinking about how it applies in the realm of the assessment for the MCAT it could increase your score it may not but certainly a master's of science program and this is again the sort of consideration for the special masters mm -hmm. like they understand like the more intense science that you have and the more tailored coursework you have mm -hmm. to support what you're learning, right? So they're giving you an opportunity to extend that learning in a research environment. Mm -hmm. They're going to give you a research opportunity. They're going to say, okay, part of our program is this academic coursework and a preceptor mm -hmm. to connect you to research so that you can now produce an outcome of success, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's a paper, a dissertation, a thesis, in some cases, it's also inclusive of clinical opportunities to build your knowledge of medicine, right? Applied medicine. And so, you know, I've talked to candidates that have taken these special master's courses and they're talking to me from their clinic, mm -hmm. right? Because uh, this is their clinic rotation. I mean, they may have a couple of rotations that they're doing as part of this program. Mm -hmm. And again, you're paying for all that yeah. too. So the cost is higher, but it's more consistent with what medical school looks like. So when a medical school is looking at the special master's program, the approach, the application, the completion, the success, the advocacy that comes from it, mm -hmm. they're saying, okay, yeah, this, this person's ready for medical school. There's literally very minimal doubt that that is happening unless you don't do well in a program. Mm -hmm. But if you do average to above average, the consideration is, okay, this person is ready for medical school. So it's a much different application. Mm -hmm. 
you can actually take a look at the undergraduate component and say, well, okay, we understand what that is, but we know that the progression includes all of these things that are part of medical school and that they've achieved success, they have an outcome, they're ready. Can you say that with the post-bac? Maybe, right? It's not always super evident, right? Because the only outcome is the coursework and then you're kind of evaluating the coursework. Is it as competitive as another course that you've taken in your undergrad? Is it as competitive as these courses that other candidates in our pool have taken. And again, the only way you can really assess that is again, like looking at test outcomes or tangible outcomes through research. Right. So, you know, people always say, well, does the MCAT matter? Well, yes, it matters because it's a reflection of what you've learned. Right. Or it should be. And I know that MCATs are the bailiwick of everyone. No one likes the assessment, people think we should do away with it. And I've actually made that, I've made that pitch to my committee, certainly during the pandemic, like, why are we even using this? And the truth is, it's an evaluation of all those things that I mentioned, mm-hmm. because there has to be some, some correlative point that you can assess and say, okay, this is uniquely suited to every candidate, right? Mm-hmm. It may or may not be, theoretically, but, you know, it is a standard everyone has to sort of consider. So based on this standard, are we now seeing coursework that is helping us understand that this candidate has achieved success as an average consideration of those in the pool or above average or below average, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of what, it, what it's all about. That is, this podcast is gonna be a gem for anyone who's considering a post-bag or SMP, because that is the most descript, like technical explanation between the two that I have ever heard. And as someone who actively, like this time two years ago, was in this dilemma of like, which one do I do? Do I pursue a post-bag program that I could do a DIY at mm-hmm. some you know local college? Or do I you know pursue a special master's program? And yeah. Yeah, just thank you so much for that. That is, I, yeah, I had no idea. And, I think just a plug too, it's, um, yeah, so I went to the Loyola NAMS program and everything that you mentioned, where it's like the system gave you the coursework and they try to mimic every single aspect of a medical school. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, and I think the biggest thing for me actually, coming from a a bigger public university without uh, special medical advising, the advising was like Mm -hmm. key. I had no idea what I was doing when I look back, like my first like, potential application cycle. I was right. like, what are the deadlines? And what about yeah. to turn this in, that in kind of thing? And they just literally held my hand and they were like, hey, this date, this date, they had someone, a personal advisor who was telling me to do these things. Mm-hmm. And I realized like, just kind of the bo- two modes that you describe, it's, it's definitely like, what is your personality like, right? You, do you feel like you can do um, a self DIY post back? And are you like organized to where you can do all those things and ultimately perform on the MCAT and show off your knowledge or you know do you just need more more help in the sense that it's hard to apply to medical school and and i definitely needed all the help i can get and also to plug um the msmp program that we have here at switch like you mentioned um in order to simulate coursework of a medical school the msmp kids quite literally take the exact same courses um as the medical students they take our same courses they are taught by the same professors and they're taking our exams 
and are graded at a higher degree than I pass fail, right? They're going for a grade. So seeing the rigor of that, I can only imagine it being quite literally a great indicator of will you succeed academically in medical school. Right. The, the other component of that, and you've mentioned it, uh, it's, it's very uh, clear to me that some of these master's programs are selective. So, again, I, I can't speak to the programming element or the, or the institutions that choose to do these programs. But what I can tell in many cases is that, you know, in their recruitment process, they are looking for candidates that fit a certain criteria of success. Because at the end of the day, they want to be able to say, we had 100% of our students get into medical school, right? So the risk factors are limited in some cases, right? So I would say MSMP does a pretty good job of defining the academic journey that every candidate has taken and realizing that they can resource that candidate to the point where they can be successful, right? Um, you know, I see many candidates in that pool who have, you know, science backgrounds, you know, have majored in, you know, science core, um, you know, degree programs who have, you know, pretty good GPAs too, right? Uh, in some cases, I'm often wondering, like, so why are you doing a, a master's program? But to your point, many students may say, well, I, didn't, I don't really know what I'm doing or I don't really have a good idea of what I need to do next or they need the strong advising. I know, you know, many students from California, especially University of California mm -hmm. system programs, they, they complain a lot about mm -hmm. the advising or the lack of advising that they have. Uh, they use terms like crowdsourcing a lot more than other candidates in the country because they have to really work together in a cohort model to succeed as a group of students. So I think that's an immensely unique model. It actually works really well for University of California students, but obviously it doesn't provide them with the greater opportunity to get acceptances in the state of California because of the limited number of, of seats. So when they do look at other institutions to apply to, they, they feel like they're maybe not as strong because they don't have the requisite advising and pattern of activities. I've seen many candidates who have very strong academic records from UCLA or UC Irvine or UC Berkeley who literally have like no clinical experience or no research. Um, and it's often the case that they're like, well, yeah, I know I need these things, but I just never had anyone guide me towards the right opportunity. And it was especially true during the pandemic because a lot of those opportunities were, were limited, right? Especially the clinical ones. Um, so, you know, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's always, you know, one of the things that we think about, you know, the expense of them is, is another real prohibitive factor for a lot of candidates. So, you know, we see, and I'll go back to the California model again, because there are a lot of candidates uh, who are first generation low income who, who can't, you know, necessarily afford to go down that that path, right, to, to pay into a, a degree program directly after undergrad or, or even, you know, a couple of years after undergrad, um, paying forty fifty thousand dollars for the for this for the opportunity to kind of do similar things that they were doing before. Right. 
Um, and again, I, I recognize too that in some cases there are gaps that they may have experienced that they're not quite sure they can overcome unless they have some iterative step to exercise and demonstrate their knowledge and feel more confident. So I, I do feel like there's a lot of that that goes into the decision, but but ultimately a lot of candidates from Central Valley of California who are maybe coming from low income backgrounds, they, they do the informal track quite a bit. You know, so when you look at their applications, you'll see, you know, like one or two credits at one community college and then maybe four or five credits at another community college and then maybe a few more at another community college. So, and this could be over, you know, several years. And the thing is like, they're consistently done due diligence to keep their knowledge base active. Mm -hmm. But when you compare that to a student that's kind of done the all in, all inclusive model, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it does look different. Mm -hmm. it, it provides the committee with, more opportunity to get advocacy from one source mm -hmm. and not try to figure out from the multitude of environments the candidate has gone through what that really looks like for them in terms of like the advocacy piece because a lot of it would just be from the classroom perspective. Mm -hmm. So now with a master's program, you have the academic perspective. If they're asking you or facilitating an opportunity for you to do research it's obviously within their own institution now they can you know let us understand and reflect upon what you've learned because they know what you've learned they're going to ask you directly they're going to interview you before you submit your application similarly with your clinical experiences they're going to be factoring an understanding of how you're evolving in that realm as well much like you would be in a clerkship right they're going to have feedback from the, the, the provider. So, so all of that advocacy and, you know, um, written recommendation consideration is part of that master's program too. So, so again, it's a much harder thing for someone doing this on their own because you can't really have that contiguous connection of understanding your story and your journey. You have to really do that on your own. So the thing about students who come from backgrounds like that is when you read their applications, you get, you get more of that detail. You get more of that context. You get like the family background. You get the personal background. In some cases, you get the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? We look at that as an opportunity to understand the resilience of the person. The grit factor is really important for us. Grit has to do more with how you've, how you've managed adversity, in your life and in your journey towards this goal. And obviously there's more opportunity in that reflective model to get a sense for those things than it would be for the person that has gone from undergrad directly into a special master's program that's kind of all inclusive. They don't have to share a whole lot about their personal story. You know, they can actually hide a lot of details and just let the work speak for itself and the advocacy speak for the candidate. So I would say that while the special master's programs and the master's students do look academically more viable, in some cases, we don't know them as well. We certainly don't know the personal construct of their behaviors as well, because there's maybe not enough to connect to their previous experience, their previous, their family, support mechanisms, you know, those things. Um, 
it's just really interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about it and I'm, and, and I'm just like hit on an epiphany here. Like I, I really feel like that's one thing that definitely separates. Like, cause our, I feel like our committee is very much drawn to the story because we're always, you know, we're insistent upon the fact that our mission is the guiding force for us. We want people that have served others. We want people that understand the commitment and sacrifice necessary to do that. So hearing about that, resilient path does encourage us to see the candidate as more complete. And we do get a lot of candidates who come from master's programs, special master's programs. And I'm sure you were saying this in MAMS. Why don't they take us all? You know, why, why is it that we, you know, some of us are going to get the guarantee and other, others of us are not. Um, and even when we do get the guarantee interview in, in place, you know, and I, I could tell you this from my perspective, some of the reviews just aren't as strong. Because the reviewer is like, well, I'm not sure what this person's motivation is. I'm not sure why this person is doing it. I'm not sure why this person is going down this path, right? But when someone has literally given five or six years to the journey and pieced it together over time to sacrifice family, work, whatever the case may be, like, I mean, I've seen candidates who've driven like two hours to go to a class and then come home and take care of their parents, whatever the case may be, right? Like, those stories are very compelling. So, and again, it may be when you're looking at them on paper, academically, not the same. MCAT, not the same. But we know that if they apply themselves and give them this all-inclusive experience without all those distractions, maybe, maybe perhaps we can get them out of here with the same type of academic consideration that those who have just come in from this, you know, this, this sort of all-inclusive environment have, right? I mean, again, that's an idea. That's a theory. It doesn't always work, though, you know? I think, yeah, it's, it's something that much, Money can't buy effectively, mm -hmm. right? The, the level of introspection and mm -hmm. just maturity that time gives you and that right. adverse interactions and experiences give you. I, I, and that's something that you bring up and something that I, you know, really didn't think about, but I realized like, yeah, that's the power of the personal statement, right? Mm -hmm. It's, and I remember when I was first writing my personal statement, I thought it was fine. And then I had someone review it for me and they were like, like effectively, I guess in 2022, they, 2023 they would say like chat gpt could have wrote this it's like a super basic oh. you know superficial statement and um if i didn't get that advice from that person to he he literally told me to sit down and just think about your life and your story and i think if i didn't get that advice i would have just wrote a superficial you know personal statement thinking that yeah my smp my my grade my gpa from that program my letters of rec from the things that i did would suffice for, you know, my lack of inner thought and motivational, you know, thinking of why I wanted to do in medicine. And I think because of that, those things are, are now forever, like, in my mind, ingrained yeah. that when it, things are tough, I can look back at my personal statement and be like, these are my motivations why I want to do in medicine. And I don't look at my SMP GPA and be like, oh, this is why, you know, none of that matters anymore, <laughs> I think, in retrospect. It's mostly, it's all about that core motivation. Like right. And, and that's another reason why the um, supplementary or secondary prompts are important mm -hmm. because, you know, you're right. The personal statement can be a very uh, standardized process for some 
candidates. We recognized that there's a lot of AI <laughs> out there that is helping students put statements together. Oh. Um, I've actually, um, over many years, I've, I've asked our committee members to think about the most important components of the application. There was a time when uh, we were actually discussing just getting rid of the personal statement altogether because we didn't think that it gave us any real mm. opportunity to understand the person. We felt like it was more of an of an exercise mm. that the candidate was was committed to to tell a story that wasn't necessarily accurate, but the most compelling story they could tell, mm. which is not really what we're looking for. Again we can piece the story together by virtue of understanding the actions of the individual over time. That kind of speaks for itself. And so the interview then becomes the opportunity to sort of connect all of these different considerations together. You know, if I, if I see a journey of over five or six years that involves family trauma, that involves personal sacrifice, that involves, you know, uh, grade progression that's gone up and down, but it's now trending up, like there's viability in understanding the mechanisms of that behavior and how that behavior might be influential in helping patients because we recognize that patients go through similar journeys in their life. A lot of patients aren't always going to be as well off or privileged as our, our students. So, so that's another part of making that connection, right? Um, but obviously, I think it's important to consider you know, the value of your personal experiences, regardless of whether you've had it rough or it's been relatively easy for you. I, I think that many of our committee members like the idea of a stable background, like the idea of a, of a person who comes to us from a stable family background where the parents have supported the student, given them the resources to do what they feel they want to do with their career, and the student has done exactly that, has taken those resources, has made the, the most of them, went through a four-year college program, studied abroad maybe for a semester or two, came back into the world, maybe did a, a gap year, committed to working in some environment of care or research or, you know, AmeriCorps or something of that nature, and has applied to medical school. Like, that, that makes a lot of sense to people, Right. But at the end of the day, if the person is now coming to interview and is standing only on the fact that I've done these things because I know that I have to do these things to get into medical school and doesn't wish to provide any context to it, doesn't wish to tell us more about their own inner landscape or their own internal motivation, then we're not going to necessarily see that person as committed to the path, right? Because it's been laid out for them. And they've participated in it. And there's a difference between participating in a path that's been laid out for you and really forging the path on your own. There are many candidates that come to us with no family history in medicine, with no uh, connection to medicine other than disease that has influenced them or their family, right? And have had this motivation built from that perspective and have done the same considerations that others have done to get to the same point. Right. And we often say this in our committee, we have and I use this analogy a lot, the football field analogy. I actually use it in my training where I talk about like, you know, the person who is, you know, taking the ball and had gone the distance of 100 yards to get to the end zone. And some people 
who have had it pretty easy. They're, they're like the, the, the person who, who gets the ball on the one yard line. And, and, you know, there's like, okay, come on, you're going to go in and you're going to score for us. Right. I mean, did they do as much work as the guy that went 99 yards and did all the work, but is now going to be sidelined and uh, watch their replacement score the, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a rough analogy, but it, it does have some semblance of meaning in our process when we think about, you know, the journey itself and, 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 and the reward to the journey. Right. So, you know, again, these are all kind of offshoots of what you really wanted to talk about, but not to take it further, <laughs> but like a lot of these points do resonate with me and I promise I'll circle back, but they resonate in the, in the sense that it's very indicative of how my first application cycle went compared with my second. Because my first, like you said, I think I was very motivated to try and sound good and sound compelling. And I was being truthful, mm -hmm. but maybe only in the factual sense, not in the personal sense. And so yeah, yeah. once I realized it, and mainly because I had that conversation with Tina through a reapplication advice kind of seminar thing or whatever it was, um, that was probably the driving factor that helped me improve my application um, in terms of me s telling my story, not like right. trying to tell a story that sounded good. Right. And so um, the same with INSUP, that's what I look back on. I look back on that second personal statement that was much more honest with myself and what I was going into medicine for in the first place and right. kind of that um, unstable background that I had versus a, maybe a patient that had a, or not a patient, an applicant that had a stable one. But right. um, that's, I guess, kind of bringing back to my point because I was considering all these things, you know, should I be doing a post-bac program, SMP, or looking for research or whatever it was. And her main advice was, well, I think the main thing is to be honest with yourself, you know, write an essay. She, she really focused in on that personal statement and the essays that I was writing. It was like, well, just like tell your story, tell you about your family. And I, cause I, I was telling her about my family, but I never had written that before in my, um, any of my previous essays or personal statements. So that, that was like a, an epiphany yeah. there. And so I think, now to circle back, there's no cut and dry answer to say whether one applicant should be doing a post back or an SMP or not. Um, it's very relative to what um, that applicant's journey to this point has been. So we've kind of already answered it throughout this conversation, but if there's an applicant who's trying to um, let's say an applicant is trying to improve, improve their extracurricular experiences and GPA. Um, let's say they're somewhere right on the line of being a good GPA to like, you know, a not so good, or, you know, like kind of in that three, five, three, four range, would you recommend they carve their own path? Um, like we were saying, like, I, I know it's hard. It's not a, like I said, a cut and dry answer, or would you recommend seeking out a, post-bac program at SMP because it's a really tough answer and it was for me too to kind of see what like how do I know I ended up not doing it and it worked out for me and the second time but you know that might not be the answer for every applicant so um, yeah is that something that they should focus on gaining you know valuable experiences whether that's clinically or through research or um, 
or should they try and you know go through that post back route? I think you kind of jump on that, you know, John. Sure, thank you for sharing like your personal experience. Yeah. But um, I remember we were, we were talking a little bit before this, and like just I didn't experience it personally, but I've heard you know stories from friends as well. But that like that moment when you realize at the end of the application cycle that you know it didn't work out, you know that is the emotion of everything of and it's a very tough experience and a low one and i think kind of what john was asking as well um he's, he's asking the practical advice what should we do i was wondering like do you do you have any just even may not even be like a practical what's the next step thing do you have any advice like just for that in, in between phase from when you realize that it's probably not going to work out this cycle um you have a couple months of breathing room maybe you take two months off three months off kind of thing do you have any advice for that reapplicant kind of reflecting like what you know maybe it's not like look into an smp program or look into your next mcat date like do you have any other advice for them that they can possibly use yeah i mean those are both good good questions i mean it's hard it's it's always challenging for me in my position because i mean i'm not an, an, a healthcare provider or, or not, i'm not a provider and I'm not uh, uh, a pre-health advisor, okay? So I recognize that in those two roles, there's a specific thing that is important for every student wishing to be a trainee to have, right? You need to have the understanding and the backing of a physician, I think, uh, the understanding of what they do and how they've done it and, and afford that opportunity for yourself to understand the nature of the career, but also you need their advocacy in your process. So they can help students with recommendations, I think, from a practical standpoint of just like experiences. I think pre-health advisors, good ones, they understand the nature of your connected academic efforts and all the things that you've done to provide the baseline of necessary components for your application. So if you trust those individuals, then I think your your instincts about the things they're telling you, I think those provide you with a really good opportunity to find the right landing point for yourself. Mm -hmm. So I try not to overstep in areas where I think that a student or candidate has that support. Mm -hmm. So if they don't, if they just come to me and say straight up, like I need advice, then I'm more willing to get it, mm -hmm. right? So in your, in your consideration, you, you mentioned the fact that, you know, someone might not necessarily know what the best route is for them, right? Um, and again, like it's always important for me to have information about the person's ability to resource whatever it is that they might need to accomplish, right? I mean, I understand that it's not easy for a person to separate themselves from work once they've stopped their formal course of study. So being flexible, being adaptable, like I may ask a lot of questions to understand like what's reasonable for you. I mean, I know I can, I can go to a list of, you know, post-bac programs in the U.S., uh, the AMCAS is put together, I can, I can sort that list based on 
candidate needs, right? So if a candidate needs an evening program, if a candidate needs uh, a, what they call a grade enhancer program, uh, if a, a candidate needs uh, a program that provides an opportunity for a formal course of study, again, some some programs are harder to figure out. You know, they're not going to call themselves special master's programs. Now, there's a program downstate at SIU they call med prep. Med prep is an anomaly in that it it does a number of things. It provides a pure post back experience, but it also provides a master's program experience. And the two are not always the same, right? And when I have gone down there and talked to individuals who are in the program. Some of them are doing the one-year track. Some of them are doing the two-year track because they can't afford to do the two-year track. Some of them are doing the one-year track knowing that they can't do anything else because they're compelled to go all in, even though it's a post-bath, which is unusual, right? So, so there are lots of things they're giving up, but at the same time, the recognition is that they need to do it, right? They need to do it. And I wouldn't make the recommendation to someone who has to work to do that program, right? That would not be fair to me. It wouldn't be fair to them. I mean, again, I don't want to do any harm in the sense that I don't want to force a student to think about spending money they don't need to spend or they can't spend to do something they may not need to do, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the things that every, every candidate has to be really aware of or the things that they essentially need and... And, and, and if you're having that conversation with someone like myself or a counselor like Tina, then, you know, being honest with your parameters, that, that would help us make the best type of recommendation. Um, once you go through the cycle and you're not successful, again, I think it's always important to feed back to the schools you've applied to and get a sense for what their, what their process discovered about, the, about your candidacy. Right? I mean, that's not always going to be possible. This institution does that, I mean, because I'm a dean, right? <laughs> and, I, and I say to my staff, like, we need to be able to provide this feedback to our candidates. This is one of the reasons why we go to such great lengths to have the process that we have in place. We've got a system review, we've got a human reviews, we've got interviews, with written feedback and rubrics, we've got selection with written feedback. We've got an entire committee process with feedback. I mean, there's there's written feedback along every step of the way. So if I'm gonna speak to anyone about their process, especially if they've gone through the interview process, I've got a lot of detail to share with them that otherwise I wouldn't be able. To. Otherwise, it's just gonna sit on my in my database forever and never do anyone any good. So why not take some of that information, feed it back to the candidate, and help them understand like where they are with this, right? Yeah. This just makes sense. But again, it's not it's not easy given the staffing that we have and given the time it might take to do that. But again, it's something we offer. But but I also think that every medical school should do this, but I know that they don't. And again, same concerns, right? Staffing, opportunity, and in some cases the process is just not as sound, so they may not have the ability to take a look at all the commentary or the rubrics because they may not exist, right? Um, so I feel like that's an important thing, and I've seen our numbers increase exponentially when it comes to reapplicants. Last year, we had the most reapplicants 
successfully apply and achieve success in application since I've been doing this and I, I would I would gather you know if we had the evidence supported previously and the uh, previous administration of admissions here we it probably does exceed even previous years um, and I'm not going to say it's all because of the reapplicant counseling that we do but I think when we look at our process for reapplicant counseling and we're describing and giving advice, we recognize there's a lot of advice that's similarly kind of applied to different considerations among candidates. So when we look at a candidate that's reapplied to us, we can tell if they have done things to improve. We can tell if they have thought through the process of their first application and what may need to have changed. You know, and again, we do suggest within our secondary a prompt to that effect as well. Um, so, you know, I think we we feel it's important because we know that this is a process. We know that, you know, every candidate, there is growth. And in, in I've seen candidates grow a lot from one year to the next or, you know, one application to the next. I think it's very gratifying. I've, I've talked to many candidates during this cycle who I may not have remembered giving advice to or talking to, or I may not have known that we gave them a counseling session, but they will speak to it at some point and, and, and tell us how important it was for them to get that feedback. So it does have merit, you know, it is an important thing. I mean, you're putting a lot of money and effort into this process and to have no success you know that that's that's crippling. I I'll never forget. I I um, I met a young woman here when I was director. She had applied to fifty two medical schools and didn't get a single interview. And and I said to her, I said, did you ask any of those those schools to give you feedback? And she said that she only got one school to give her feedback. And. Um, Honestly, I was like, I was astounded. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, I just, honestly, I feel like, you know, for some candidates, and maybe that's an indication, right, that this isn't the right path. But, but I think that if you really want it to be your path, and you've gone through that kind of process, and you haven't gotten the feedback, that you need like she did the right thing she came to me out of the blue she didn't apply to us but she recognized that i was someone that could give her advice i don't know if that was through a podcast i mean i do i do get that a lot though people like just emailing me out of the blue wow. saying that if, you know hey I, I heard that uh you you would be able to give me some advice about my application i mean i for me, like that's that's like recruitment, but it's not always predictive recruitment. Like I go to a an event, or I go to a conference, or I you know I do presentations. Some of them are recorded, and you know that's the idea, right? You're you're putting information out there about the viability of your institution, but some people recognize and see that, and, and then they I guess again crowdsource to find out oh. Well, he might give me some advice about my application. So, so yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I just, I had a conversation with a young man just last week. I mean, 
in some cases, I'm like, really? You really want to go to medical school? <laughs> um, and I just, I wonder, like, how, I mean, I, it's, it's never been my goal to be, like, the dream crusher, to say to, say to someone, like, you just aren't, you'll never make it. I've been put in a position of having several iterations of meetings with candidates over a couple, three, four years where not much has changed. Or you know, it's almost like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill, but they keep coming back down with no success. And it's really hard to say to them, maybe you should do something else. Um, and I, I, maybe because I don't do that, uh, maybe that's why I keep getting more people uh, coming to me out of the blue. But, but I do feel that at some point, and this is in our process, like if you're at a third application, we typically are like, you know what, this might not be the best, you know, choice for you moving forward. If you if you've gotten to the point where you're at three or four applications, many medical schools are not going to read your file. Um, many medical schools are going to have it within their process that they're going to have a threshold for the number of applications that you can submit. So, and again, I think that is to help students redirect. You know, there are a lot of different things that they can do and. Some, some candidates come to that discovery on their own. Some need a little bit more, I guess, um, opportunity to understand that. But I, I'm constantly looking at the process that they've put in place, looking at how they strategize to change their methods, whether they be methods of applying knowledge or study to build better knowledge and outcomes for the MCAT or experiences. I get a lot of that. Uh, certainly during the pandemic, a lot of candidates were like, I can't get into the clinic. Well, what should I do? Um, yeah, it's, um, I, but again, like I said, if you have an advisor, someone you trust, if you have a physician that is helping you and guiding you that you trust, like those, those inevitably become invaluable resources that I can't replace. Just all of the best knowledge and wisdom here. <laughs> I, this is probably going to be my go-to recommendation for anyone you know at the end of their cycle or you know or even like in the beginning of a cycle if you're just applying I feel like you know just the insights that you provided us and like kind of the little secret you know sneak peek of like what it what the machine is like right what yeah. how the sausage is made effectively <laughs> and um and also the hard truths right uh yeah. I think what you shared about you know if it's your third fourth application and just kind of leading people to realize the ugly truth or the something that they might not be wanting to realize themselves, you know, yeah. and ultimately it's, I feel like, yeah, it's an aspect of like tough love, essentially. It's Especially for those, I think this will like hit a note for those who are mentorless in a, in a way, you know, yeah. who, who don't have that, yeah. um, that figure to kind of go to when they have a question or a proper pre-med advisor. Yeah, well, I hope that gets across because I see a lot of candidates now who, who apply and they don't have any letters from a physician. And I'm mm. thinking to myself, why are you, why are you asking? And I'm not a, I'm not a physician, but, you know, I orient a committee of physicians to make the decision about a person becoming a physician. <laughs> so if you know that that's the ask, why wouldn't you have a physician 
advocating for you, like walking to the door with your application saying, hey, hey, colleagues, here's someone that I approve of. Here's someone that I recommend to you, right? If you're not advancing an application with that kind of advocacy, then I'm not saying it won't be successful, but it won't communicate the same type of process, consideration, that it would if you had that advocacy behind you. And I know for many that's hard to do, but you know, you, there are gonna be so many more challenging things that you're gonna have to do on the other side of that, like communicating bad news to patients and families. So you gotta, you gotta take a stand for yourself and advocate for yourself in that way. So again, I, I hope that that can come through too. Because um, I don't have all the answers for students, and I'm typically trying to direct them to an opportunity where they can get the advice that they need. You know? And I think you're doing God's work. You're doing an amazing <laughs> job. And I can yeah, personally attest, like after interacting with you know the 25 plus medical schools I applied to, I feel like you know Stritch admissions culture is unique. They, they genuinely care and you know, they have to because there's like seven different types of times where somebody's actually looking at your application. So um, I feel like we definitely get that sentiment through this conversation with you um, and the culture that you've created here. Um, and just really appreciate your time to you neighbors. Thanks. Yeah, I absolutely. always say that this job for me is my opportunity to help human existence sustain itself because, you know, if, if this is a, a point where that can be determined for an individual to be trained, to have the capacity to save a life, to bring life into the world, I can't do that. But if I can participate in that opportunity to make that happen, I'm all in, right? This is why I do the work. A lot of people ask me, like, why why I, I do this, you know? Um, that's, that's certainly the most compelling reason. It's the reason that we're always kind of thinking about in our process when we're looking at candidates. So if you, if you know nothing about the process, know that that's ultimately what every medical school, that's their goal, mm -hmm. right? So I think that's the perfect ending um, for this time. Thank you so much, Dean Neighbors. Thank you, yeah, John. Of oh, course. Thank you both. Um, this has been great. Yeah. Um, thank you to our listeners and Please share this podcast for uh, people that need it because I can already predict another Bangaro podcast is going to get the second most hits that we've ever gotten. <laughs> or, uh, yeah, or first. It surpasses the first. That's true. Knows? Yeah, that, uh, it'll be a rare sequel that precedes the original. <laughs> so. Got the Dark Knight coming up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate Thank, it. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Dean Neighbors. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.